Y'all agree with me, Lord, we just pray that the anointing and the glory would be so strong on this word, Lord, that you would captivate us to give you our best and our full attention, our focus. Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me your words of life to God as living seeds of truth sown in a good, fertile soil in hearts and minds and lives. Watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. And Lord, that your truth of your word will shine like light in the dark places and dispel any type of darkness or deception of the enemy and replace it, Lord, with life and truth and revelation. I ask you, Lord, that your word will go forth and produce great faith as faith comes by hearing the word. Let it be rhema, not just logos, but rhema tonight. Let it be manna from heaven, Lord, that will truly nourish. And Lord, we ask you to confirm your word with the miraculous. We thank you, Lord, for it. Let us get locked in and focused. Let your Holy Spirit just tune us in. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. All right. You know, the warning to the last day church was to not become lukewarm. That's So, I mean, the, the times that we're living in, there are people... Right, but this is right before Jesus comes. I, mean, I don't know if people realize how close we are to the coming of the Lord. The Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. And people, by and large, are at a place where they're really having to choose what side of the fence they're going to get on. You know what I'm saying? And then this lukewarm playing game business. I mean, we're living at a time where people are going to be on fire for God. Or they're going to fall away from the faith. But they're not going to be able to play games. Amen? Alright, so what I wanted to talk about tonight, I'm closing out this series on the priesthood. And I'm going to be starting a series next week on interpreting and understanding dreams and visions. Y'all excited about that? Alright, some of you guys come to me on a regular basis. Pastor Scott, I had this dream. All right. No, there's several. Okay, that's that's wonderful because I like to hear them, and if I can get an interpretation for you, I like to help with that. Um, but what I want to do is I want to teach you about this subject to where you're going to start getting more understanding about it yourself. Okay. And how many knows God speaks through those things? I don't want to get ahead of myself and talk about it too much, but God speaks through dreams and visions and revelation. He really does. As a matter of fact. By the time you're 60 years old, you would have slept about 20 years. Yeah. So with that said, that's 20 years that God could have been speaking to you in dreams and visions. So just embrace that because the Bible says in the last days, he said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all over the world, all flesh. And he said, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men dream dreams. Your young men have visions. So obviously there's a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit accompanied with prophecy, dreams, and visions. So that's kind of the angle I'm going to be going from next week. So y'all come expecting. Be praying for me about this. Anytime I start a new series, just please pray over the series. I really appreciate that. I value that. All right. So I'm finishing this on the priesthood of the believer. What I want to do is I want to talk about um, the ark, I'm going to talk about the glory tonight. Psalm 104, verse 4 says, He makes his winds 
I'm sorry, he makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his servants. Winds speak of the angels. Flames of fire, I believe, speak of us as his servants. That's just my opinion. Winds speak of angels. There have been times, I'm going to tell you, I don't want to get off on a thing about angels too much because I have a whole sermon on that. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of angelic activity that people don't realize is going on. You have no idea how many angels are around this place right now. You have no idea. If God opened your eyes and you saw it, it would shock you how many angels are actually within the sound of my voice. Um, there's angels all over the, the kingdom of God at work among Christians and especially bringing in the harvest. Jesus said in Matthew thirteen thirty nine, the end of the age is the harvest and the harvesters are angels. Why is it going to take angels? Because there's going to be such an onslaught of satanic attack in the last day. The Bible says, woe to the earth, Satan has come down to you. Okay? So there's going to be such an onslaught of spiritual warfare that God says, I'm not going to stop the harvest from coming in. Satan may try to stop it in every way he can, but I'm going to send forth my angels and they're going to get the job done. Amen. And they work with the evangelists that go out winning souls. Like Brother Anthony, for example. When he goes out to India and he preaches the gospel, I'm telling you, there are angels that are dispatched to make sure people get saved. Amen? So, I'm just saying that to say, let's uh, be comfortable with the idea that there's angels around us and at work. And I've, I've had some several angel stories. I don't tell a lot of them. Um, but there's some neat stories. It won't, just one I'll give you. Um, well, let me tell you one that Benny Baker told me, actually. I think you'll like it better. There was a man, a preacher, that had gotten so sick that uh, when he preached, he had one of his arms was not really working right, and he would just kind of tuck it in to his jacket or whatever. And he would preach, and he had to have a napkin or something with him that he could wipe his nose and his mouth because he was bleeding. And um, he was he was sick, man. I mean, and... He had been praying for a miracle, people praying for him. And one day when he was preaching, now this, I heard this from Benny Baker, a friend of mine, and he said this is a friend of his. So this is somebody, he, Benny Baker knows this person's happened. He said that this, this guy was preaching, and there were people there at the church. And he said all of a sudden there was like a loud noise in the back and um, something that nobody could see with the... With the um, regular eye, the natural eye, you couldn't see it, but something was walking down the aisle, and as it was coming down the aisle, people were falling like this. It's falling out under the power of this and it was an angel. And this angel, when it got up to the front of the podium, um, he felt something hit him and he flew backwards several feet, landed on his back. People were out in the pews, people were fell out under the power. He was on the ground back here. He finally gets back up. When he gets up he's totally healed completely healed now that's not the end of the story this is my favorite part of the story he goes home and he was getting ready for bed and so you know he's taking off his clothes and all that and he's standing in front of the um the mirror and he takes off his shirt and it shocks him because there's this huge handprint right here now i mean bigger than a, a normal man's hand he said it was huge handprint like this where that angel had whacked him in the chest that's a cool story isn't it another angel story all right i'll tell a couple angel stories but i got to get on this sermon we'll be here late okay whenever we were at brownsville 
the uh, I'm, I mean, I've got several, but just real quick, this is a short one. But when we were at Brownsville worshiping the Lord with that revival and half, I told you guys, I wasn't expecting anything, but I felt fire coming up from the ground up my ankles. Now, I've never felt that before anywhere. That's hallowed ground, friend. I mean, seriously, there was hundreds of thousands. And that's not an exaggeration. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million people, that got saved on that ground. Okay, it's hallowed ground. I felt fire of the Holy Spirit shoot up from that ground up my ankles, my calf. And while we were worshiping the Lord, I felt that. All of a sudden, I felt a wind whipping around me because there was angels in that place. Around. But another quick angel story, since there's requests for this. Okay. Um, John Kilpatrick has a really cool angel story. Some of you have heard it, but I'll tell it for those that haven't. He was a little boy. And um, listen, sometimes when Satan does not want you somewhere and you don't want to be there, like a move of God or a church service or whatever, that's an indication that it's going to be a powerful service. Because Satan tries to get you to not want to be there. I've had times where I've seen people not come to revival, and it was the most powerful service of that whole revival. And they were like, I just didn't feel like coming. Something was, I don't know, I just didn't want to be there. Well, that was the devil keeping them out. Don't let, anytime something's trying to make you feel like you don't want to be there, that's an indication you need to be there. Okay, don't let those type of negative feelings dictate what you're going to do. But John Kilpatrick said that he had just found out, I'm going to sum this up as fast as I can, that his pastor, who was a spiritual father to him, his biological father was a heathen, and um, if I remember correctly, was definitely cheating and messing around with his mother, but anyway, left the family. And so he really clung to this this senior pastor that he had as a, as a father figure. He was only about maybe 10, 12 years old. He's a little boy. And uh, the, the pastor had gone through a major trial. They had an evangelist come in. He was an amazing preacher. And the crowds were coming in. There was a great move of God that was going on. This guy could preach really good, but the pastor felt in his spirit, he felt something was very wrong. And so the pastor, after a few weeks of the revival, called the evangelist in and told him, said, listen, I don't know what's going on. But just I cannot violate my conscience. Okay, my spirit is telling me the Holy Spirit speaking to my spirit that something is wrong, and we're shutting down the revival. Of course, the people liked this guy. He was a handsome young man. He could preach really good. So he started a rebellion against the pastor, and he started a, a petition that they could sign. It was going throughout the church to oust the pastor and bring him in as the pastor. And so this was in the middle of this happening, and John Kilpatrick said that. It was so heavy. He said the atmosphere of the church, it was like something satanic just plopped over that church. There was a S. The Bible calls it a spirit of heaviness. He said it was just hard to pray. Uh, it was just, it was very oppressive, the atmosphere of the church. This was an evil attack of the devil. Well, um, the older pastor that had been there, he told his, his young spiritual children, he said, I'm not going to stay and fight this fight. He said, I'm too old. He said, I'm just going to, there's a church opening up in Florida. They were in Georgia, I believe. He says, there's a church opening up in Florida. I'm going to take it. And so Brother Kilpatrick, his little boy, John Kilpatrick, his heart was broken. He did not want to be there. They had a prayer meeting. He did not want to be there. But as a little boy, he didn't have the money or the means to not be there. Um, so he was stuck in that church. Everything in him, he had a broken heart. He knew his pastor was leaving. Here they had this prayer meeting. There was about a dozen men that were there. They were all over the ground. They dimmed the lights. They just prayed, okay, these pyramids. And he said his heart was broken. The church was heavy. He couldn't pray anyway. It was oppressed. His pastor would lay back in the back under a pew 
would seek God in private like that. And he said, all of a sudden, in the middle of all that, he didn't he didn't want to be there at all. But he didn't have the money to get a bus. He didn't have it was too dangerous to walk home. So he was stuck. How many knows God will sometimes stick you somewhere you don't want to be? In the middle of that, all of a sudden there was this explosion. He said these doors were several, several feet high. They were old doors. He's, if I remember correctly, they were probably about seven or eight foot high. You guys have heard him tell the story. And they bolted five ways because he used to bolt the doors. He said they bolted five ways and they were shut. And he said this power hit those doors that shocked them. And he said those doors, even though they were bolted five ways, opened up with just enough force to stop at the walls like that. And he said two angels walked in. He said they were so big that their, their head was at the top of that door. He said they were probably seven or eight feet tall. He said one walked in like a military. He walked in and turned and went and stood in one corner. Another one walked in, turned and went in the other corner. He said when they came in that place, he said the atmosphere of oppression, satanic heaviness that was there, that rebellion against that pastor, what was going on, he said it just broke in that place. It just broke that attack of the devil. And... um, they, of course, he was sitting up front and watching this and was just, you know, well, what do you do? You know, he's just sitting there just, and um, like all, any of us would. And he said, they, they, it's like they heard something from heaven. They turned and went back out just like they came military style. They were gone. The doors were open. It was the middle of the night. So the pastor gets up to go shut the doors. And John Patrick said, man, he said, I was a little boy. He said, I was spooked. He said, I was scared. So I ran up. He said, he ran up behind the pastor, you know, was following him to the doors. He said, if something's going on, I want to be by the man of God, right? And um, the pastor got back to the doors to shut them. But when they got in the location of where those angels were, there was about 12 to 14 men. All of them simultaneously were hit by the power of God and just collapsed. And John Kilpatrick said they were there all night and didn't even realize that they were under the power all night. And he said he what woke him up the next morning was the sunlight coming in. And it woke him up, and he's, his head was over a man's calf. And he woke up, and he said those doors had been open all night. And this was back in the 60s during the civil rights, and there was a lot of stuff going on that was dangerous. That's why they had the, the church locked up like that. There were riots. He said, anyway, they, um, they woke up, and the main thing that came out of that visitation was this. Up until that point, that pastor was going to leave. That church was under a major attack of the devil. And it seemed like this guy was going to lead a rebellion. It seemed to be working. Several people signed that petition. And uh, when John Kilpatrick said he saw it, even as a little boy, it broke his heart because he was shocked at some of the people that would actually do that because they were, they were people he was close to in the pastoral. The pastor got up Sunday morning, normal service. He went up to take the offering, open his Bible, and he said that the power of God just suddenly hit that place so hard just exploded in that atmosphere that about 14 people fell under the power of God speaking in tongues and they had been seeking to be baptized in the Holy Spirit for years instantly baptized in the Holy Spirit like that and he said the pastor heard from God that night he's not leaving he's going to stay and he said all those rebels that were going to um, lead that rebellion he said friend they just disappeared he said they never even saw him again they didn't hear a peep out of them they just disappeared off the face of the earth and were gone, okay? And it came out that that pastor was right, that evangelist was molesting kids. And he's, if I understand the story right, he's still in jail now. 
So the pastor was right. You know, you can't go by somebody's charismatic personality and their good looks and that they preach good. All right. So anyway, that's another angel story. I got to move on. All right. So let's get into the word tonight. He makes his winds. Uh, he makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. God is wanting us in these last days to be walking flames of fire that carry his presence. Okay? The greatest warning of the last day church is to not be lukewarm. The Laodicean church is the warning to us. Don't get lukewarm. Satan is trying to wear out the saints. There, there's a lot going on. There's so much wickedness around us. And, and you're seeing with your eyes, you're seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled because the Bible says in the last days, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about a great falling away. So you're seeing with your eyes people that come to church and get touched by God that are falling away from the faith, and the Bible predicted it would happen. You've seen people that walk with God for a long time, and now they're an atheist. Now they're a witch. Now they're a homosexual, whatever. And, they, and some of them literally hate Christ. They hate God. They hate the Bible. But you're seeing what the Bible said. They said these are the last days, perilous times, okay, difficult times. But God is wanting us in these last days. We're not just here to survive. We're here to make a difference. We're here to be light in a dark world and salt in the earth. The only way we're going to be able to do that is to be walking with the Lord in His presence. And that's kind of where I'm going with this. So one of the things in this series that I wanted to highlight was why we do what we do. Because many years ago, I did a study on the tabernacle. And I found in my own private life, I found the Lord's presence. And I found His presence through prayer. And if you look at the Lord's prayer, it parallels with the tabernacle. As He said, our Father, the reason we're children of God is because of the blood. So He's talking about coming through the blood. And he said, hallowed be your name. That's worship. That's the incense. And then once you're in there, you begin to pray about the things, the categories. I've taught on that. But my point is, this tabernacle pattern is what brings you into the presence of God individually and corporately. So that's why we have a little bit different pattern in our worship service than some places. But I want the presence of God. I want the glory. And so, you know, one of the things I always mention is this. If, if any church ministry of any kind across the board does not have the manifest presence of the Lord, they need to ask why. And they need to seek God to get His presence among them. Because it's when His presence, when He's there in His presence, His power is there, that people are getting saved, healed, delivered, all of that. It's the anointing. It's the glory. We need it. Okay. So, real quickly, we have already gone through those within the sound of my voice, I'm assuming that you've heard the gospel and you've accepted the gospel. So you've already gone through the gate, which is the gospel, and you've already gone past the bronze altar, which is the cross, because you've accepted Christ as your Savior. But daily, we need to wash at the labor. That is examining yourself. Okay? And one of the ways you can do that is just under, just going through the Ten Commandments. But listen, there's a few things that I really recommend that you commit to memory. The Ten Commandments is one. I recommend that you memorize that. I have it memorized in categories because I do this a prayer every day. But also that you memorize the ten major main names of God that I gave you last week. Because it talks about worshiping His name, hallowing His name. And so knowing those ten names is really powerful. Okay, But as you go before the laver and you're being washed, 
the laver, you look into it, it's a mirror. It's God's Word, the washing of the Word. And you go through the Ten Commandments. Lord, is there any idolatry, just like we did earlier? Is there any, um, you know, using your name in vain or things that's come out of my mouth that should? Is there any area in my life, Lord, where I've dishonored my parents? Is there any dishonesty, lying and stealing, any kind? Is there any lust of the heart, which is adultery, looking with lust? Is there any um, murder of the heart, which is hatred? Do I hate somebody? Do I have unforgiveness in my heart towards somebody? Has there been ungodly anger and rage in my life? And get it under the blood. And the last one, covetousness. Is there any love of money or greed? Is there, is there materialism in my life? It, I'm telling you, if you go through that labor daily as you enter into prayer, it's so powerful because God will show you things you need to deal with and that washing takes place, the washing of the Word. Then you go from the labor to the table of showbread, which is communion. I'm not going to teach on communion. I mean, that's a communion is an awesome, powerful thing. When I taught on that, I think it really showed everyone how powerful communion really, truly is. Okay, It's manna from heaven. It's something supernatural. It's powerful. So you take the Lord's Supper. There's a deep consecration. God does a work there. And then the lampstand. The lampstand is where the Holy Spirit now is beginning to move. Ask the Holy Spirit to come have His way and do what He wants to do. He is God Almighty. He'll do what He wants to do. God the Father is in heaven. God the Son is at His right hand. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one that lives in you. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work in this service. Okay, so we need to get to know Him. And the the lampstand represents, the Holy Spirit represents His anointing, His revelation, and His activity. So you welcome the Holy Spirit. That's why I have unstructured services. Some services are very different than others because... I'm going to move with the Holy Spirit what He wants to do. He can turn it any time. A good example was uh, last night in youth. Um, I usually just help with worship, and, and Pastor Stephen does a great job. He just takes off, preached a powerful word last night. By the way, he did a great job. But during the worship time, the Holy Spirit just started moving. And, um, man, He wanted me to take a totally different turn with it. And, you know, we, we did something a little different. We had some... Some stuff we played that people were praying in agreement with and all that. Anyway, but the Holy Spirit fell in an awesome way last night because we moved with Him. Now, if we had simply said, no, let's just do what we always do every week, that would have killed what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. So any given day, any given service, any given prayer time that you have, you have to be willing to move with Him what He wants to do. Okay? And some days will be radically different than others. Some services will be radically different. But there's ultimately, there's a general pattern. Okay, the labor, the lampstand, and all that, there's a pattern. So after the lampstand, the Holy Spirit welcoming him and, and following him, then it is the incense, the golden altar of incense of praise and worship, prayer, and intercession. And as that incense is going up into God, that worship is so powerful that that will cause you to begin to move into the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence is. Does this make sense? This is a pattern. This is a pattern that we that I follow in this ministry here corporately, but also in my personal prayer life. Um, I follow the Lord's pattern, but it works with the tabernacle pattern exactly. Okay? And that's my personal prayer life. And I'm going to tell you, even in my personal prayer life, I've had some powerful visitations from the Lord. God wants to meet with His people. God wants to spend time with His people. Okay? 
All right, so the Ark of the Covenant, once you went past the outer court, you come in through the gate, the outer court's the size of a football field, it's big. This is where animals were sacrificed, which represent Jesus at the cross. There was blood everywhere. And all around that outer court, it was all lit up with natural sunlight. Okay, So people are just seeing things in the natural. But once you got past that and you went into the holy place, where this showbread and this uh, lampstand was, it was lit up by the lampstand. It's divine revelation. Now the Holy Spirit can speak to you and he's bringing revelation to you. This is the area of the bells and pomegranates, remember, on the priestly garments where there's tongues and there's the gifts of the Spirit. Then, as you burn that incense, you would go past the second veil into the Holy of Holies. So that's where we're going in this service. We're going to close this series out talking about the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was only 10 by 10 as far as cubits. It was 1,000 square cubits, and it represents the millennial reign of Christ, which we talked about. It also represents the outer court, represents the flesh, the holy place, the soul, and the Holy of Holies, your inner spirit. The outer court also represents God the Father, the holy, the holy place, God the Son, the Holy of Holies, God the Holy Spirit. But when you went into this Holy of Holies, this is where God's manifest presence was at that time. And in the Holy of Holies, there was only one thing. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, It was two and a half cubits long. It was a rectangle. Two and a half cubits long. It was one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits tall. These were small. I mean, one and a half cubits is about three feet tall. It's not very big but the emphasis was one and a half cubits was the same size as the outer bronze altars great where the blood was it's the same height as the table of showbread which represents the blood and now this ark of the covenant that mercy seat is one and a half cubits because the outer court the blood got you in the holy place the blood got you in and now in the holy of holies is the blood that gets you in you remember that it's the blood of Jesus that brings you into God's presence. Not anything else. It's the blood. And once you understand the power of His blood, you'll understand that you can come into His presence. But you can't come in your own righteousness. You can't jump high enough. You can't sing loud enough. You know, you can't do whatever you think it is that surely God will take me into His presence now. I mean, I'm just shouting so loud and singing it. Doing a, no, that's not going to get you in. What's going to get you in is the blood. Okay? The blood gets you in. So the emphasis is the blood. Inside that box, the Ark of the Covenant, inside of it, they kept the Ten Commandments. The original Ten Commandments. The ones that Moses brought down. They kept in there a jar of manna. And they also kept Aaron's rod that budded. Many of you know the story that there was a challenge against Aaron. Anyway, these different rods were set out and Aaron's rod budded, showing that God was with him in that office of authority. But you have the Ten Commandments now, as Christians, that are written into our hearts inside of us. You see where I'm going with this? The Ten Commandments are now inside our hearts. It's written in our hearts. The manna from heaven is communion that goes in us. Okay? And Aaron's rod that but it has to do with the authority that we have. Rods speak of authority. The authority that we have as Christians, as priests, to minister to the Lord. Okay? 
Let me give you a few um, really interesting parallels. All right. On that Ark of the Covenant, you looked at it. It was a rectangular box. It was gold. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. But the top of it was called the mercy seat. So the priest, once a year on Day of Atonement, he would go in and he had this censer that was burning incense. He's in there and he would take a bowl of the blood from the outside offering. He would sprinkle that on the mercy seat and the glory of God would sit there on that mercy seat and light up that place like a light bulb. Now, on the mercy seat, there were two golden cherubim that were hammered in that would face each other. Okay, I want you to see this. The cherubim were hammered into that that um, golden lid called the mercy seat and they would face each other. And in the middle there was where they would put the blood and the glory would come and fill the middle. This middle area is representative of God's throne in heaven. Okay? And the cherubim are the angels that are around it. I hope you got that because this, this story is going to make more sense. All right. When Christ raised from the dead, okay, he shed his blood on Calvary, was three days in the earth, went down into hell. We know the story. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He raised from the dead on the third day. Mary, isn't it interesting that God used women? Right at the beginning? Well, think about it. Eve brought in what she did through the woman, but God used Mary to bring forth Christ in the earth. And not only that, it was the women that came back from the tomb, the first to preach he's risen. But anyway, they went there and saw that he wasn't there. Peter and John ran. John's telling this story. Now, how many knows if you get the chance to tell the story, you're going to add this in? I always laugh at this part. But John says in his writings that Peter ran out first and was in front of him. But he outran Peter. He always adds that in, right? <laughs> if I wrote it too, I'd probably, if I beat Peter, I'd probably put it in the Bible as well. Yeah, I beat him in the race. But anyway, they got there. They got there nonetheless. And when they went in, um, they saw where Jesus was supposed to be. But watch this. There was an angel at where his feet would have been, an angel where his head would have been. That's the mercy seat with the angel. It's making more sense as to why some of these things are in the Bible, doesn't it? Satan, at one time, was Lucifer. And Lucifer, apparently, he was an anointed cherub that covered. What are these two things that were on the mercy seat here? Cherubim. Lucifer, at one time, I believe by rank, he was some kind of an archangel. He obviously oversaw something to do with worship. We can kind of put all that together. You put the pieces of the puzzle together. But he was an anointed cherub that covered. Most likely, Lucifer was like that mercy seat cherub that covered the throne of God at one time. That's how close he was to the Lord. And he led worship from that place. It was above this area, the Holy of Holies, where the ark was. It was above this that God would allow the um, pillar of fire by night. Now, how awesome this would have been to see. Okay? The pillar of fire by night that would be glowing in the sky and keep you know, people around there. It literally brought warmth, but also it was showing that God was among them. And it had a cloud uh, by day that would bring shade over Israel and keep them cool because they were in the wilderness. So during, you know, the weirdest thing about the desert, it'll get triple digits during the day, but at nighttime it gets freezing cold, okay? So God was with them and he gave them a cloud by day to keep them cool, shaded, 
and he gave them a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm. And they would follow. When, when the cloud would lift up off the Holy of Holies and begin to move in whatever direction, they began to pack up camp and follow the cloud. It's a sign to us today as Christians, we've got to follow the Holy Spirit. Follow His leading and follow His presence. Also, inside that Holy of Holies, Aaron had that breastplate, remember? And he would go in once a year and apply the blood, the glory would come, and he would stand there face to face with God in God's manifest presence. And he would intercede for the nation of Israel. This Holy of Holies is a place of deep, profound intercession. Intercession is different than prayer. Prayer is you're asking God to do things. And we're supposed to do that. The Bible clearly says that God will do, you know, when you ask Him, He will do what you ask and your joy will be complete. We know that. But intercession is where you begin to petition God for other people. You're praying, Lord, have mercy on these lost people. Move in their lives. Bring them to Christ. You begin to pray about your nation. Lord, forgive us for the sins of our nation. Forgive us for the sins of our region. Pour out your Holy Spirit in our nation against sin revival. That is what intercession is. You're standing in the gap. A lot of times the reason why things happen that don't have to happen is because people are not interceding the way they should be interceding. God doesn't want to send judgment, but judgment comes on a nation because there's not intercessors standing in the gap. And I can prove it with the scriptures because God was going to fry the nation of Israel and start over with Moses. They, they royally ticked him off with the golden calf. And Moses said, no, Lord, please don't do that. Don't start over with me. Lord, have mercy. And God forgave them and heard Moses and spared him. And not only that, but Abraham. Abraham was, was standing there, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, in a distance. And God spoke to him. I'm going to rain down fire or whatever on Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to be done with them. And, and Abraham said, no, Lord, please don't do that. If you can find it, he brought it all the way down to ten righteous. If you can just find ten righteous, would you spare it? And the Lord said, I'll spare it for ten. And he sent angels in there to check it out. And they couldn't find ten righteous people. But how many knows God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah with all that sexual perversions, all that was going on? He would have spared them for ten righteous. So don't give up on America. Okay? But God needs intercessors. He does. He, he, he can do anything, but He won't. He does what we ask Him and we pray for Him to do. And He does what we stand in our office of authority and speak out. He does that. But He doesn't just do anything. He can, but he want, he, we're, we're the ones. The Bible says the, the earth is given to the sons of man. We're the ones that make the difference. We're, our prayers make the difference. I hope you understand that. Because there's people that think, well, we'll just sit back and God will do whatever He wants to do. That's not the way it works. If that, if that, What would have happened if, if Moses had that attitude? Well, God, God says, Moses, I'm about to fry the nation. They're gone. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses just said, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do. You know, God would have started. We wouldn't have the 12 sons of Jacob. Okay, you know, we wouldn't have things the way they are. God meant it. Okay, we would have had the 12 sons of Moses. Okay, and God would have started all over. There'd be different names and everything. Your prayers have power. All right, but as you get into this secret place, that's what I'm trying to get to. Once you go through this pattern, you get into God's manifest presence in that place where you're, you're, you're in His presence and you're seeking Him, you're praying, 
there's something powerful about getting to that place. This is also a place of soaking. I love the story of Samuel. Samuel was young, and while he was in um, under Eli's care, and he was ministering before the Lord, Samuel would go through the, the ritual process of being cleansed and all that, and would go in there and burn incense, do all the things he's supposed to do um, as far as taking care of the tabernacle. But you know what? He would get in that Holy of Holies, and he would lay there by the ark and sleep at night. Samuel, Samuel was no dummy. He knew God's presence is in here. I'm going to sleep in here. And as he, as he laid in there, he was in God's manifest presence. As he was soaking in God's presence, God was preparing him to be the great man of God that he ended up being. But it's, it's literally soaking in his presence. And that's why as I start this series on um, dreams and visions about the nighttime, your nighttime can be very powerful in God. And it should be. Because, you know, I don't know how long everybody sleep. Let's say six to eight hours or whatever, but that's a long time. That's a time where God can speak to you, and it's a time that you can be soaking in His glory. What would it be like? You know, people have been hit by the power so many times here. You're under the glory here at church. What would it be like when you lay in your bed at night that that was on you? Now, let me ask you another question. Why, why isn't it? It should be. Why isn't it? Why isn't the glory on us at night? I mean, I've, I've prayed about it. The glory now is in my life, on me at night. But why? people say, well, I wish I could have that in my life at home. There's no reason you can't. I wish that would be in my house. God wants it in your house just as much as you do. There's no reason that it shouldn't be. I wish I could lay at night and feel the glory on me. You should. <laughs> it should be there. But that nighttime can be a very powerful time. The morning and evening sacrifice I talked about in this series. You'll get up in the morning and pray. You prepare your day. But in the evening, you need to take some time to pray over your house. It doesn't have to be a long time. But just pray over your property and, and get washed in the blood. If you want to take communion, that's fine. And I've learned in the nighttime that speaking blessings is powerful. You know, I speak blessings over the property and I speak blessings... Um, many times I'll take the Lord's Supper, but I speak blessings not only over the property, but my wife and I, before we go to bed, um, she'll speak a blessing over me. I speak a blessing over her. Very powerful. But there's something about the blood, the washing of your property in the evening before you go to bed. See, God expects us to be taken care of. In the tabernacle, the priest were the ones that went through there. They took out the old nasty bread and put the new bread. They trimmed the wicks on the lamps to keep the fire burning. They, they took the old wood out of the bronze altar and they put the new wood in and keep the fire going. It was their responsibility to keep the upkeep and the work of the tabernacle. It's our responsibility to, to maintain an, a place and an atmosphere for God to dwell. It's our responsibility. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. The priest had to do this every day. And so God is wanting us in that evening sacrifice, it takes some time that the blood of Jesus just wash our property and cover our property. And, you know, you begin to speak blessings and pray. And, you know, and there's nothing, I, I think there's nothing wrong at all with you playing some anointed stuff at night. You know, we have technology now that we're, you know, with a computer, you could play some powerful worship or something at night. 
but you're preparing an atmosphere and the glory of God will come begin to dwell in your property and you'll find yourself waking up at night and you'll feel the glory on you like a blanket. I'm going to tell you, that that's throughout history too because Evan Roberts, before the Welsh revival, he was living at home and the glory of God would come on him in his bed and he would wake up at night and he would feel the fire of God all over him. And this would happen for hours on end. And whenever it was time for him to go off to college, he was scared to leave because he thought, will this presence follow me to college? He didn't want to leave because he knew that God was touching him at night in his bed. Okay, why is, why is that not happening? If that's not happening in your life, let me encourage you, as not only a pastor, but somebody has a passion for revival, let's stir up a hunger and a passion for more of God. Okay, I'm telling you these things to put a fire in you that you're hungry, that you're wanting to go deeper, and your nighttime can be something that's more than just laying there have, you know, asleep and that's it. There's more to that that can be there in your life as far as God speaking to you and soaking you in His presence. And it's a powerful time with God because God can give you dreams that are from Him. He can give you visions of the night. There's been times that I've woken up because the power of God was on me. There's times I've woken up having a dream from the Lord. And I had to document it, pray about it, and get an interpretation. These things can happen at night. But there's something about in your personal prayer life, you get past that labor, you get past the showbread, you get past the lampstand, you now you're in worship, and you now the presence of God is there, and you've prayed, you've prayed about things you need to pray about, you've got it all prayed about, that now you lay back and you soak in His presence. There's something so extremely powerful about that. Catherine Kuhlman said that's the treasure of heaven. She's referring to that. That you get into that place of intimacy with God where you're soaking in His presence, face-to-face talking with Him. She said that's the treasure of heaven. Benny Hinn says it's the place of great anointing. That is the place where deep calls to deep. Because no longer is it just something that, you know, your physical body was, was worshiping and praising God. And then your mind, your soul area, your mind was real active. You're telling God all the things you need to pray about. But now, it's spirit to spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking to your spirit. As the Bible calls it, deep calling it deep. But there's something powerful about soaking in His presence because God will do a deep work in you in soaking in His presence that probably can come no other way. I think a lot of times God is putting people out in these revivals under the power because He's simply just saying to them, I wish you'd just lay here and soak a little bit and spend time with me. But people have such a tendency to pray, and then when they get done talking about everything they need to talk about, well, all right, see you later. You know, they take off, and God will touch them, and they'll fall under the power, and they hit the ground, and, and they're like, okay, they stretch and get up, and they're gone. And I can just see the Lord up there going, I wish we spent a little more time together, you know? <laughs> But soaking is where you're spending some time with the Lord. That's the place He can speak to you like no other place. You know, what would happen a lot of times, I encourage people, you get, you've already talked to Him about everything you need to talk to Him about, now you're soaking in His presence, so you just listen. What would He give you? What would He speak to you? But in that, I have found in my personal life that in that place of soaking God's presence, face-to-face, you're there, you're talking with the Lord, that in that place is a place where there's a fresh anointing, a 
okay? There's revelation, and there's also very powerful answers to prayer. It just seems like when you're in that place, you've got the Lord's ear. I'm just saying. He loves all of us. He answers prayer however you want to pray. You're walking down the road, you ask him to do something, he said he would do it. But I'm just saying there's something about having his attention like that, having his ear. There's something about it that's very powerful. The presence of God. When the ark would go forth in the Bible, Moses would say this. He would, I'm sure, lift his hands like this, say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and those that hate you flee before you. Now think about it. The ark goes forth. That means the presence of God goes forth. When the presence of God goes forth, that's when the Lord is arising and his enemies will be scattered and those that hate him will flee before him. But it's the presence of God that goes forth. The Bible says in Isaiah 4, 5 through 6, that the glory of God will be a defense over our homes and our lives in the last days. I know many of you are already familiar with this, but I want my life individually and, and my property and all of that to be enveloped in the fire of God. That the, the fire of God, the glory, is a defense. As the Bible says it would be, it's a defense. Okay? That, you know, if there's some demonic spirit, some principality, whatever, goes walking through my neighborhood and says, look, there's a lot of houses I want to go in, but I'm scared of that one. I'm not going to go over there. That's, that's the glory. The glory of God will form like a dome of fire around your life. And the enemy, it's very difficult for the enemy at that point to traffic in there. So revival, as we know it, I talked about how the Lord began at Brownsville, that prophecy that Dr. Cho gave. He said that revival would break out in Pensacola. It would begin there. It would burn like a match head. It would move 50 miles west, which it has at the Bay Revival. So we had the Great Brownsville Revival was prophesied over. It's done. The Bay Revival was prophesied over. It's happening right now. But he said it would back up again in Florida and go up the east coast across the nation. And then and when it got to the southwest, it would shoot up the west coast. And when it got to the Pacific Northwest, all of America would be ablaze in the fires of revival. Ultimately, Dallas would be the hub. I've said this just about every service, okay? But I believe that God is taking us beyond that outer court experience, like at Brownsville. Brownsville was about the souls being saved. It was about the, the labor, the, the water baptisms, and they, that was awesome. But I believe God is wanting us now that he's lifting a veil, that we come into a place of healings and miracles and deliverances and baptisms in the Holy Spirit and where the gifts are more in operation and that it's more uh, widespread than just the souls. Which I understand at Brownsville, there was a lot going on. I understand that there, there were healings and all that. But the emphasis, the overwhelming emphasis of the revival was souls. And God is going to continue to save the lost. But I believe he's wanting the church to go deeper. Though. That we're beginning to function like never before. That we're carrying his presence and we're carrying healing. We're carrying deliverance and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'm concerned about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I've seen um, what used to be so powerful in Pentecost and full gospel and all that. Nowadays, um, most uh, Pentecostal full gospel churches have moved away from any of the gifts of the Spirit. They, they're not praying for people anymore to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, there was a time years ago 
when spirit-filled churches, people come early to church, they're walking the aisles, praying in tongues and believing God for a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. They start church, the power of God would come, and they would stay in the altar time for hours, praying for people to be healed, praying for people to be delivered of things, praying for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Where did that go? It's like Satan stole it. And, and there's, there's a lot of preachers that, that now are given into the temptation to be seeker-friendly because there's more money involved in that. And they don't want to get up and talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues because they're afraid they'll spook somebody. Who cares if somebody gets spooked? Okay, just let, Listen, what we don't need to lose because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the clothing of power to get the job done. You know, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses. Okay? It, that... You know, very much is sending the message that without that, you're going to struggle being my witness. Listen, let me tell you something, you guys. You, you're going out street evangelizing. And I don't mean this condescending because it's the same with me. You and I, we're not smart enough to figure all this out. You think, well, I'll just give somebody a good example. I'll, yeah, okay. Listen, this is a spiritual battle. You may every once in a while drop some good line that you're proud of that you told somebody, okay, great. But I'm going to tell you something. That's not going to save people. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to convict them and save them. When Peter got up on the day of Pentecost, have you read it? Was that the greatest sermon you ever heard? He just quoted a scripture. This is that which was spoken of, you know, in Joel. He said, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. 3,000 people got saved. Why? Because Peter preached this great message. It went on and everybody was in awe of his oratory ability and his charismatic personality. No. Because the power of the Holy Spirit cut them to the heart and they were convicted. And they said, brother, what, what must we do to be saved? And I tell this story many times about a guy named Vern that, that came to fix my air conditioner. But he, I tried to witness to him. He shut me down. I don't want to hear it. I said, well, why? He said, because I work with a preacher and he's preaching this to me all day, every day. I don't want to hear it. He says, fine. So as I was about to leave, the power of God fell on Vern. His face turned red. He said, his lips are quivering. His eyes started watering up, and he's shaking like this. And he says, what's going on, man? I said, well, Vern, God is trying to save you, okay? He's trying to save you if you'll listen to him. And you know what he said to me after getting mad at me and shutting me down? When once the Holy Spirit touched him like that, I wasn't praying for him. This was totally just a God-sovereign thing. Probably that preacher had been praying for him. That's probably why this happened. But the power of God hit him, and he, uh, and he said, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do? I said, well, pray with me, man. I'll lead you to the Lord. But it was not my oratory ability, and it was not the preacher that he worked with. He didn't want to hear it. But when the Holy Spirit touched him, then what comes out of his mouth, what must I do to be saved? It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit that gets the job done. Amen? We've got to move into having a deep burden for prayer, birthing prayer. And taking in the harvest. The Bible says those that sow with tears will reap with joy. Remember how Elijah was in like a birthing position. He was praying and the cloudless skies, the, si the cloud the size of a man's hand came. And then there was a great rain. What's going to happen is, is God is going to give us a burden to pray. And we've got to pray things through. That's why it's so powerful with the intercessors that are interceding and travailing at you know Tuesday night prayer. And as they're lifting up their voice and they're travailing and they're, they're offering up this intercession and the, what the Bible says, groans that can't, cannot be uttered. And it's, it's, it's powerful. 
Well, as that's going on, what you got to understand is you're doing what Elijah did, and that through that birthing, that burden that you're praying through, it's literally birthing things. It's birthing souls into the kingdom. It's birthing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, revival, lives being changed, people being healed that need healing and delivered and set free, and all of that. It begins in prayer. So, you know, we come in on Tuesday nights. We examine ourselves. We take the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come have your way. We offer up incense. We get into the glory through praise and worship, prayer and intercession. Then people begin to travail and intercede and cry out to God. That is the place. That's what the what was a foreshadowing under Aaron. That he would go into the uh, on the Day of Atonement, he would go in and make intercession for the nation of Israel. This basically a shadow of what we have now. And as you're interceding and travailing, God is releasing things. But it has to begin in prayer. That's why so many are frustrated. They're going out in their own strength to get things done. They can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit shows up because somebody prayed things through. It's intimacy with God that brings spiritual authority and victory over the enemy. It is. The children of Israel camped around the tabernacle. It's interesting to look at the way God set them up because on the east, which is at the bottom of this picture, the east gate was where Moses and Aaron and all the priests lived right there. They pitched their tents there. And at the east, Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun lived there. And Judah would always go first into battle because Judah represents praise. And, and the praise releases spiritual warfare. It brings victory. But I find it interesting that the East Gate, Issachar was known for being a people that were somewhat prophetic because the Bible says that they knew how to discern the times and seasons of the Lord. That's what the Bible says about Issachar. Remember that? They knew how to discern the times and seasons of the Lord. Judah was the great warriors. It was the biggest tribe, most numbers. Um, King David came out of Judah, great warrior. Of course, Jesus Christ of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was a, a praise and warfare tribe. And then Zebulun lived by the shore and they became a haven for ships. Zebulun prophetically speaks of that people can come to your ministry and receive refreshing and then take it back out. So what God is saying here is that he's wanting us to be a people that can discern the times. He's wanting us also to be like Judah that were um, worshiping warriors. And then like Zebulun, that God can bring people to us that are, find refreshing in ministry and then they can take it back from where they came. And the red marks the different... Uh, Within the Levites, you had the Kohathites, Merarites, and Gershonites. And they oversaw the ministry of the tabernacle. All right, let me close out with a few quick things. The shofar. The shofar is so powerful. And let me give you guys that are um, young ministers, I want you to hear me about this. During the Brownsville revival, there were certain things that were really emphasized. Not only righteous living, but there was teaching about the leprosy in your house. Remember that? There was teaching about 
the speaking of blessings, the shofar, several things. And churches got powerfully touched by God, and they began to apply these things. There was an emphasis on communion, the Lord's Supper. Dick Rubin brought that in his teaching. And people in their churches began to do these things. But as time went on, they moved on past it and they're not doing anymore. Let me just mention this to you. Don't quit doing things that God's put on your heart to do. Be consistent and be faithful. Okay? Because people have moved on from things they shouldn't have moved on from. And now their churches have taken a turn back into religion and tradition and things like that. And it's not what it was. There was a great move of God there at one time. But they forsook some things. Okay? The shofar is very powerful. Gideon had a handful of men, 300 men. And he had to fight hundreds of thousands. Now, let me encourage you when you read the Bible to try to imagine yourself being there. And try to put yourself in Gideon's shoes. People read over things a lot of times and just kind of gloss over it, keep going. Think about it if you were literally there and you were literally Gideon. There were hundreds of thousands of trained warriors that were as mean as a snake. All of them had swords. They're camped out like, you know, as far as you can see. And God gave Gideon 300 guys. And he's looking at them. He looks out as far as you can see. He looks at them. There's no way. And Gideon said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to encamp around. We're going to go all the way around them. And you're going to blast a shofar. And you're going to break this clay pot. There'll be a light that shines. You're going to blast the shofar. So they took 300 shofars and surrounded those hundreds of thousands of warriors, blasted those shofars, and God sent confusion into that camp. And they began to kill each other. And Gideon and his men just simply went in after that, cleaned up the rest of it. But God fought that battle. The shofar, God fights the battle. God confuses the enemy. The second thing about the shofar, the walls of Jericho came down. Did you know there's things that are satanic strongholds that the devil sits back, just arrogant, got his hands crossed like this. I've been here for years. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not moving. I dare you to try to come in here. There's principalities that sit there with their arms folded over cities. Say, I dare you to try to bring a move of God in this city. I dare you. They're arrogant. There's a stronghold there. It's just like the walls of Jericho. But the children of Israel marched around Jericho once a day for six days on the seventh day, seven times. Blasted the what? The shofar lifted up a shout and those walls came down. That stronghold came down and then the people were there vulnerable. They were so arrogant, so cocky, they didn't have their swords strapped on. You probably had a guy that was sitting there cutting into his stake and the wall came down. Another guy was taking a nap in his lazy boy. You know, all of a sudden the wall's down and the children of Israel are standing there with swords. See, that shows the arrogance of what I'm talking about. The devil, the, these, these beings around the world, they've set up a stronghold. I dare you to come in here. I dare you. And they're sitting there arrogant, but whenever God shows up and, and the walls that they trusted in, those walls crash down in front of them. All of a sudden, their face turns from arrogance to fear because you're coming in now and you're plundering the goods. 
So the walls of the enemy come down at the shofar blast. And the third thing is David, when he brought the ark out of Shiloh, wherever it was left, I believe it was Shiloh, they, they had set the tabernacle there. And David, when he took Jerusalem, he wanted the ark of God there. So bad he wanted God's presence. So he sent, they brought it. But as they were bringing the ark in, what did they have? Praise and worship. The dancers were dancing. The shofars were blasting. The shofar has to do with bringing the glory of God in. So the shofars will confuse the enemy, bring breakthrough in spiritual warfare, but it also helps to usher in the glory of God. Not only that, but God connects banners and shofars together. The different tribes that encamped around the tabernacle, God told them to make different banners or standards, whatever you want to call it. And they would set up a standard, a banner, and this banner had different colors and all of that, and it represented their tribe. So the tribe of Judah would have a certain colors, um, certain designs or whatever to indicate that's their tribe, that's their standard, their banner. And also, from what I understand, it was reflected in their prayer shawls as well. And so you could tell somebody from a certain tribe sometimes because of the colors and things connected with their apparel. So... God connects the shofar and banners together. Let me read you some things. I love this. In Exodus 17, 13, God is revealed as Jehovah Nisi. What? The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. Psalm 20, 5 through 7 says, We will set up our banners. It's like saying... This place belongs to God. What happens whenever somebody takes territory in war? They'll set up their flag. Say, this is now ground that we have taken. They'll set up their flag. There's something about banners. That's why you see sometimes different churches and ministries have banners. I know we have some that people use, but the banners are powerful. It's basically saying, this is God's property. This is God's area. We've claimed this for the kingdom of God. And now we're setting up a banner. The glory hoops also are used in worship. Their colors represent different things as they move, such as water and fire. They're used as an expression in dance and praise. It brings freedom. But Jeremiah 4, 5 through 6 says, Blow the trumpet, the shofar, and set up a standard, a banner. The banners went before the tribes like our flags of the United States. And Jeremiah 51, 27 says, Blow the trumpet, to warfare mode. So God connects the blowing of the shofar and the setting up of banners. And it goes back to the tabernacle time. They also use the shofar in this as worship. So it's interesting because now you can see all of this is in Christianity. All the patterns is fulfilled in Christ. The laver now is the washing of the water of the word. Now the table of showbread is as we take communion. Now the lampstand is the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now Incense is not a physical incense, but it's praise and worship, prayer and intercession. And now you see the banners, you hear the shofars, you hear the bells chiming, it's the tongues. It's all now come into what we have today. We have the fullness of this in Christ. And now it makes more sense. There's depth to it. But Satan has tried to pervert this. I've mentioned some things as I go. I've mentioned some things in past sermons, but have you ever thought about this? You know, we have the table of showbread, but now... Satan has perverted all of this. He's not a creator. He just takes things that God does and perverts them. But 
now there's all this food sacrificed to idols. Right? And not only that, how many other religions that worship false gods, they worship demons that burn incense to that demon god? See? Satan is trying to pervert the things that God established early on. Here's what I want to close with, Benaniah. One of my favorite people in the Bible. Nobody probably knows who he is than the sound of my voice. But you will after I get down here. His name means built up by Jehovah. He was the son of Jehoiada, the chief priest. Now listen to this. He was the son of the chief priest. That means he was not just a Levite. He was a priest. Remember Aaron had his four sons. Nadab, Abihu, um, Ithmar, and uh, Eliab, what was Eleazar. He had his four sons. This was a son of the high priest, so he was definitely a priest in office. But listen to this. He was set up by David over his bodyguard, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Let me tell you about those guys. Those guys were, were some serious cutthroat warriors. Okay? The Cherethites, Pelethites, they were actually very much like the secret service that is around you know, our president or maybe like the special forces in the military. These were guys that you did not want to get around King David. They were his personal bodyguards. You didn't want to go around the king joking around because they're liable to take you down hard. Okay, these guys were no joke, no nonsense, mighty warriors. Okay, powerful warriors. And David took this priest and put him over them. And then when David passed on and died, uh, Benaniah remained faithful to Solomon. And Solomon raised him up even more and promoted him to be the commander-in-chief of the whole Israeli military. So under Saul, it was Abner, remember? Abner died. Under David, it was Joab. But Joab died. Now under Solomon, he raised up Benaniah. So what is the message of that for us today? We've got to learn to minister unto the Lord like a priest. And then we will be able to go out from that place and be great warriors for the Lord. That could do great exploits in that order. You're not going to be able to do great exploits for the Lord if you don't know how to minister unto him as a priest first. So I love Benaniah because he's a priest warrior. And that's what God's called us to be. But we've got to find the Lord in the secret place and get alone with him. And then out of that, he can send you out as a powerful warrior for him. This is what I want to say as I close is this. God is wanting us to be people that are living tabernacles. I opened with this, remember? He makes winds his messengers. That's the angel. But he makes his servants flames of fire. He wants us to be baptized in fire. He wants us to walk in the fire of heaven and to be carriers of his fire that we are living tabernacles that carry his presence. I hope you get that. I don't know if somebody's ever told you that you cannot have that, but I'm here to tell you that you can. I don't know if somebody ever told you, well, to die down. No, it won't. The Bible says that God is an all-consuming fire. And I love what Leonard Ravenhill said, and I put it on Facebook this week. He said, if God takes up residence in you, he's not going to die. God doesn't die in you. 
He said, you'll burn till you die one day. You will burn the rest of your life. And I'm going to tell you that's true. I had grown up in Pentecost and all that. And um, when I went to the Brownsville Revival in 96, got prayer, I was hit by the power of God, went out, and I felt baptized in fire. But you know, to this day, that fire's never gone out. It's never, never gone out. No matter what I've been through, and I've been through some horrible things, but it's never gone out. The fire of God will not go out. The only way the fire of God gets out of somebody's life is if somebody gets in sin or whatever, and they, they allow things to die out on their end of it. But God does not die in you, okay? He is an all-consuming fire, and He's wanting us to be able to walk in a way throughout our day to where we can walk in peace, we can walk in faith, we can walk in humility, and we can walk in love. And from that, we can be carriers of His presence. Let me break it down. Walk in peace. You can't go around in fear. You've got to walk in peace. It's the peace of God that guards your hearts and minds. It's the peace that is the, the shoes of peace on your armor. Because those shoes of peace is what crushes Satan under your feet. Remember, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. You've got to walk in peace. Number two, that you walk in great faith. There's got to be faith. Again, you can't have the fear. Fear goes away as faith increases. Where there's a lot of fear, there's usually a lot of lack of faith. The more your faith increases in God, the more fear disappears. Do you think David was afraid when he charged Goliath? Maybe at first, but whenever that faith arose within him, he said, I'm not coming at you with the sword. I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord faith arose within him there's got to be faith the second is humility there's got to be a walking in great humility and love through those four things if you'll walk in that on a daily basis I believe that we can carry God's presence God is going somewhere in this last day revival that we will enter into a place of walking, being walking flames of fire for the Lord who walk with God like Enoch did and operate in the prophetic, power, prophetic and power evangelism. And when the Lord comes, just like Enoch, and it's time for the rapture, we will be walking with God like Enoch did and brought out. You know, an open heaven is a personal thing. It can be an open heaven over a church, but an open heaven can be over you as an individual. Whenever um, Jesus um, called the disciple... I'm trying to remember who it was now. But he told him, he said, I saw you under the tree. And he said, you're going to see the Son of Man. You're going to see the heavens open over the Son of Man, angels ascending and descending. It's a personal thing, the heavens being open over you. I don't know how big that open heaven is, but I know that it's big enough for you to get raptured through. But God's wanting us to, this, all of this, the series I did on prayer, the series I did on the tabernacle, all of that is so that people can come into a place of walking in God's presence and can know Him on a personal level. I'm telling you that your source of strength is your personal prayer life. Just going to church is not going to be enough. And certainly we can't ride other people's walk with God. It's got to be something that we get in and we begin to pursue God for ourselves. We're desperate. We're hungry for Him. We're going after Him. You know, Rodney Howard Brown said, you know, when he was in Africa, he was crying out. He was yelling at the top of his voice. He was saying, Lord, if you don't 
touch me. And of course, he's just saying this out of emotion. I'm going to go up there and touch you. you know, he's just yelling. But you know what? God touched him. God touched him powerfully to where he was. Um, he hit the ground, baptized in fire, and it stayed on him for, I, I believe, weeks, if I remember right. And uh, sure enough, now he's a carrier of revival. But there's got to be that hunger. Listen, the whole point of these series is to get a hunger in people to go deeper in Christ. A hunger in them to get in His presence. A hunger in them to um, pursue Him in prayer. It's in that place that the champions are born. Every great champion you read about in these God's Generals and the series that we're doing, all these great champions found the Lord in prayer on their own. They found Him in the secret place. And then they came out of that place baptized in fire and they did great exploits for the Lord. John Wesley, what did he say? He said, I found my heart was strangely warmed. The fire of God began to burn in his life. Him and some others began to have prayer meetings, remember? They began to seek God and seek God. And the Holy Spirit was being poured out on them. God was mightily touching them. They, they were having visitations from the Lord. And that was going on for a period of time. It was just like Paul and Barnabas there at Antioch. They were just being filled up and filled up. And what happened after that? God says, now you found me in the secret place. Now I've baptized you in fire. Now go spread the fire. And the great awakening took place. So it started with Jonathan Edwards. But Wesley and them spread that fire. But it's you finding the Lord for yourself in the secret place. So Lord, we thank you for this word tonight. We'll pray with people that want prayer. But Lord, I'm asking you, and people are agreeing with me, I'm asking you, Lord, to baptize people with fire. Lord, to put a hunger in people that will draw them into the secret place, that will draw them into a place of knowing you. Now they have the tools, they have the patterns to be able to get into that secret place. Lord, I'm asking you to put a desperate hunger in people that will draw them unto you. And a grace in them to seek you and find you. The Bible says that we seek the Lord with all of our heart. We will find Him. And Lord, in that secret place, that you will birth great champions, those that will come out of the tabernacle, baptized in fire and will be great champions that go do great exploits for the kingdom of God. Lord, that there'll be priests that minister unto you, but then they'll turn around and be great warriors that go out and do great exploits for the kingdom of God. And Lord, we ask you, those that need any type of inner healing or some kind of a priestly cleansing in their life somewhere, Lord, quickly cleanse and purify and heal so that people can come up to a place of being used to be powerfully to their potential. Or stir up a hunger. Stir up a passion. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings, Brother Zach, and put up some worship. So if you want prayer tonight,